We'll read Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 79 together. So if you will turn with me to Luke chapter 1, uh, we'll read those verses 67 to 79 together. Hear now the word of the Lord. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for the next few weeks until we can meet in person, uh, I wanted to go over the basics of what the Christian gospel message is with you all. So we will be going over various selected portions of scripture to help us see what the gospel is. And last week, we were able to go over this kind of beginning portion of the gospel message by seeing how bad the bad news really is. So what is it? Though God created us in his image and he put us in a perfect world, we rebelled against him in our first father, Adam. We incurred sin And for that, we deserve his just and righteous wrath. I'll read that last line to you again. Though God created us in his image and put us in this perfect world, a perfect world, we rebelled against him in our first father, Adam. We incurred sin, and for that, we deserve his just and righteous wrath. When you open up the Bible, right from Genesis 1-1, we read that God made everything Good. That means he created the perfect world for us. And not only that, he created us in his image. That meant we were created to reflect our maker. We were created to reflect his holiness, his love, kindness, mercy, justice, faithfulness, goodness, etc. But all that was flipped when Adam sinned. So what is the opposite of these good things and these good characteristics that we have been shown that God possesses? And let's go through two ways we can see this. There are many, many more, of course, that the Bible shows us, but I want to just go through two ways um, as we start today's message. And one portion I'll take from the Old Testament and one portion I'll take from the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we famously know about the Ten Commandments. And all we have to do is, we just have to flip or negate the Ten Commandments. 
And we've been going through the Ten Commandments in our catechisms, in our weekly catechisms, so they should be relatively familiar with you, especially if you've been doing the post-service with your family or on Zoom with us. And number one, if you flip the first commandment, it would be, you have other gods besides the one true God, Jehovah. You have other gods besides the one true God, Jehovah. You know, in the ancient world, when a nation would abandon their king for another outside king, that is what would be called treachery and treason. You'll notice that God starts off the Ten Commandments by first reminding his people what he had done for them, how he had freed them and given them this incredible, incredible freedom. The greater the king, the greater the sacrifice that he made, that would make that betrayal that much worse. Which is why this first commandment is foundational to all the other preceding commandments. And if you flip that first commandment, it's you have other gods besides the one true God, Jehovah. Number two, you have idols. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32, that the fallen nature of humans, our tendencies, is not toward atheism, but idolatry. Our worship goes to other things. We are beings created to worship. When we see something, we want to be in awe. We want to just say, wow, that was spectacular. That's in our beings. That's who we are. But our fallen nature, we want to worship anything except the creator. We want to look at our drummer and say, wow, he's so good. I should worship, I don't think anybody said that, but we want to go to other things and we want to worship other beings. That's what our fallen nature does. So that's why we create physical images, but not only physical images, but mental images of who we want as God, who we want to be awed by, who we want to emulate, who we want to be. Just look at your Instagram feed. We say things, and then we changing change who the true God really is. And we say things like, my God would never send anyone to hell. This is a classic statement that you may have heard or you probably have heard that someone would make when they disagree with the Jehovah of the Bible. And this is why Ligon Duncan would say, there is a God that we want and a God who is, and the two are not the same. There is a God we want, and a God who is, and the two are not the same. You have idols. Number three, you take the Lord's name in vain. Some might be confused as why this is such a high commandment, number three, right, out of ten. But to take someone's name and to treat it in vain or contempt would be actually treating the actual person or holding that person in contempt. So when you curse, would you name 
someone that you respect. You know, today is Mother's Day. One time when our family was gathered, uh, I think I stubbed my toe or something, and I, and I uh, ah, right? And then I just said, oh, it hurts like a mother. And then my aunts just died laughing. Um, but even that, as a joke, perhaps it might be funny, but what if, I, what if I just said that all the time and it just became something that was in my common, normal, daily speech and you just take your mom's name in vain. I'll just say my mom's name. Or if we take someone that we really respect and just use their name as a curse word, as an expletive. And yet, how come no one even bats an eye when the name of the Lord Jesus is used as an expletive? You take the Lord's name in vain. Number four, you don't keep the Sabbath holy. The Sabbath observance was given to the people of God to serve their neighbors while their main focus was to be on God, okay? We see that observances in the Old Testament are there. It's clear. But also in Jesus' affirmation that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, Jesus says he is the Lord of the Sabbath, which his disciples thereby understood as Jesus being the fulfillment of the Sabbath promise in the Old Testament. And it's clear when we look, at, look in places like Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, which I'll read to you now. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Because these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Keeping the Sabbath holy for Christian now, amongst other things, is to gather on Sunday. Why? To celebrate the new covenant. This is the substance that Christ has given us. Because the Sabbath celebrating, Sabbath was celebrating God's work of creation, right? In seven days he created. Sabbath is celebrating God's work of creation, but it had originally also pointed to Christ's coming. And now that after Christ had come, we celebrate our new creation in Christ, as it says in Galatians chapter 6, 15. But we don't keep the Sabbath holy. We don't put Jesus where he should be. And number five, you don't honor your mother, father and mother. You don't honor your father and mother. And today, society, we don't honor our elders. Youth is what's up. Aging is just the worst. Many of you have celebrate and will celebrate your birthdays in quarantine. And when I, as a joke, would add a few years to say happy birthday. And out a few years, you would get uncomfortable. Because old age is something to fear and to avoid at all costs. There's a song that I thought captured this sentiment well. It's Stop This Train by John Mayer. <laughs> but that's, that's the way we are in this world. We don't want to honor 
our elders, let alone even start by honoring our parents. God's word, however, tells us differently about how we should treat our elders, starting with our first authority figures that are given to us. They are our parents. This would lead the people of God to recognize that as you go up the ladder, as you go up the authoritative ladder, starting from your parents, that ultimately it's leading up to God because God's authority is absolute. And all these authority figures that flow down from God is for our good. But this is not how we want to think. This is not how you want to think or believe. You don't honor your father and mother. You like to think so by celebrating one day a year, perhaps. But that's who we are. And I would love for maybe one day to go through all the Ten Commandments with you in depth. But we'll stop here and we'll go on to the New Testament. Remember I said I will show you two places in the Bible where you see kind of the opposite characteristics of God. And the second one is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 10. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 10 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some perhaps may have difficulty or a difficult time with some of the elements of these verses. In fact, many have taken these verses out. And by out, I mean that you do not think that it applies to us. And you might be tempted to think, well, not all of them, but some of them don't make, any, don't make sense to me or it's difficult to understand. And as a side note, I just can't wait to start the next sermon series on 1 Corinthians with you all. I'm very excited. But I would warn you that if you start taking one thing out, it won't be long before you start taking other things out. And soon, you'll be using whiteout on your Bible to try and erase every part you don't like until there's nothing left. There's actually a famous seminary that does do this. They black out things that they don't like. And I saw one picture in Princeton Seminary where they posted a picture on their Instagram feed about someone blacking out all of Ephesians 5 and leaving like three words left. It won't be long until this happens if you start taking one thing out, then it's two things, then three things, and in the end, you are left with not the Bible, not God's word. Rather, if there is something difficult to understand, and I would say especially the more difficult it is, I would counsel you to sit and pray that the Spirit teach you his ways. Spirit teach you the ways of God. For his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. Otherwise, I, I do want to give you a quote by Tim Keller, because Tim Keller 
has warned that if you continue to do this, just because it's uncomfortable, you want to take it out, you will make God truly like a Stepford wife. And I'll put up the quote now. Do you have the quote? Right? And this is what he wrote in his book. Uh, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. For example, if a wife is not allowed to contradict her husband, they won't have an intimate relationship. Remember the two movies, The Stepford Wives. I'm sure no one remembers it, but it's an old movie that's out there. The husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, decide to have their wives turned into robots who never crossed the wills of their husbands. A Stepford wife was wonderfully compliant and beautiful, but no one would describe such a marriage as intimate or personal. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a Stepford God, a God essentially of your own making, not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, you will know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. Why does it seem so difficult to not just believe, but follow God? And this is all part of the bad news. And that's why we know that everyone deserves wrath because we're sinful and we are actively rebelling against God. Sin is not a passive act. It's in us. And it almost has a life of its own. When Cain wanted to murder his brother, what did God say to him? Sin is crouching at the door. However, what did Cain do? He still murdered his brother, earning the curse that was given to him. That's the situation that we're in. And even the passage in 1 Corinthians that I read, that's the situation we were in. Right after verse 11, Paul goes to say, as such were some of you. That's where the good news comes in. As such were some of you. The gospel is news that changes us. It's to show us that we are changed. In the passage that we read, Zechariah, he was a priest and he was married to Elizabeth. And I love these two names, Zechariah. And some of us, actually there's a brother here named Zechariah. Zechariah, Zechariah, they're all the same thing. Zechariah, anytime you hear, see the name Aya or Yah, it's uh, God, right? And then Zechariah, that first part is remembers. So Zechariah means God remembers. He was a priest and he, had a, he was the husband of a wife named Elizabeth, and Elizabeth, anytime you see the word Eli or Eli or El, that's God too. And Zabeth is oath. So God is my oath. So God remembers, God is my oath, are married. 
they have a son. The angel Gabriel told them they would have a son who would later be known as John the Baptist. And Zechariah would doubt that. He's like, after all, I'm an old man and my wife is old too. How can we still have a child? This prompted the angel to make him mute and he was unable to speak until the birth of his child. All he could do was make hand signals, like what happened before, I don't know. All he could do was make hand signals and he could not talk. And when it was time to name their child, all those that were around Elizabeth said they should name their son after their father, Zechariah. And she said, no, he shall be called John because that's how the angel had directed them. They said, you will have a son, he will be called John. And those that are with her, they go, that's not right because no one in your family is named John. So they turn to Zechariah and ask him and he starts to write on a tablet His name is John. As soon as he wrote that, he is able to speak again. And the passage that we read are the first words that he used. And he he used these words to bless God. That's why the passage that we read in the beginning, that we read in the beginning of this message, in Latin is famously known as the Benedictus. Bene meaning good, dictus meaning word, saying, or speech. So put together, benedictus means blessing. At the end of every sermon, we give you a benediction, which is from the word benedictus, which means blessing. And this is what God shows us through the life of Zechariah. Even though he had previously doubted and went through discipline, resulting in the end of his ability to speak, it was not the end of his spiritual ministry. In fact, we know that through Zechariah's repentance and submission to God's discipline, we now have the greatest thing Zechariah had ever done, which is to prophesy and give us this song, this Benedictus. Not only is the Benedictus a good word, it is the good news. And the first words Zechariah says through the Holy Spirit is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Blessed be God. Why? Because he has visited. That means he has come near to his people in a good way, not in a wrathful judgment way. The word that's used is episkeptomai, which is used also in Matthew chapter 25, verse 36, when Jesus said, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. Episkeptomai. I was in prison and you came to me. This was a visit of mercy with the purpose of redeeming. The word redeemed is actually translated from two Greek words, epoiesin, litrosin, which literally means to make a path of redemption. That means God has come to make a way and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. You know, in a battle, when the horn was raised, people in battle knew who it was and meant that they knew who was here. Think of a great battle raging, and you're losing badly when you hear the horn of someone mighty who has come. And you might think this is very Lord of the Rings-esque, but it is a symbol that the prophets had wrote 
in the Old Testament. Even in Psalm 132, verse 17 to 18, the psalmist writes, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This again pointed to Jesus, who was from the house of David, and he would not have been prophesying about his own son, John, because Zechariah is a priest, who meant, which meant that he's from the house of Levi. So he's prophesying about the Messiah, the Redeemer that has come. You see, this good, this, this good news, when you see that it's preceded by this horrible bad news, this good news has an incredible effect on the listener, the person that is affected by this good news. And you see Zechariah burst out into song. The first words that he can say is the Benedictus, which says, Blessed be God. And then in the next five verses, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The following verses talk about what salvation is. It refers back to the promises, the covenant, or the oaths of old, all the way back to Abraham. You may think that this is a political kind of statement, and to a certain extent, you may see it that way, but it is showing the reality of the history of God's people. God's people were always surrounded by enemies that would take and threaten their ability to worship freely the one true God. God's people in history were always surrounded by enemies that were threatened to take away their ability to worship freely the one true God. I don't see how this isn't relevant to us today as well. Even though we live in the most free society in this entire world. I don't say supposedly most free because I believe truly is Our country now, our nation now, is the most free society in the entire world. But even in our society, even if you agree with me, even in our society, how free are you to express the ways God has shown us that he is truly good and that he is truly true? Can you share it in your workplaces? Can you share these ideas in your schools? You know, there are ideas and philosophies being circulated now that hate God and everything that started from these Judeo-Christian principles that give proper order to society and we're made to think or we're made to believe that this is normal to go against these Judeo-Christian principles. You know, I talked about Princeton Seminary, but in this uh, very... Uh, prestigious university's most recent publication, Harvard Magazine's top read article of this past month is one titled The Risks of Homeschooling that you can find online too. It's free to read from Harvard Magazine. The report is Erin O'Donnell, but the main figure behind, the argu- uh, behind this argument that she's presenting is someone, a professor named Elizabeth Bartholet. 
She is the Morris Wasserstein Public Interest Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. She's also faculty director of Harvard Law School's Child Advocacy Program. And you might think, as the title would suggest, it's about the dangers of homeschooling. And this article may pique your interest, especially because many parents right now are essentially homeschooling their children because you're staying beside them 24-7 because there are no other options. But if you read the article, it's not really about homeschooling. There's a broader issue that's being brought up because the article would go on to say that homeschooled kids account for roughly 3 to 4% of school-aged children. That's not a lot, 3 to 4%. It's not a huge number at all, but she gets right to the point by saying that Bartholet, Professor Bartholet, sees risks for children and society in homeschooling and recommends a presumptive ban on the practice. Homeschooling, these are her words, not only violates children's rights to a meaningful education and the right to be protected from potential child abuse, but may keep them from contributing positively to a democratic society. And she continues on by saying, we have an essentially unregulated regime in the area of homeschooling. These specific words like risks and regime are used purposefully. And you might think, oh no, homeschool kids are being abused. Ban it all. There are no figures, studies, or numbers to create this crazy theory. It's just stated as if it's a matter of fact. If you homeschool your kids, you're putting them at risk for child abuse. And to support this claim, there's one anecdotal example used that she points to someone who was a daughter of Idaho survivalists. You know, survivalists are people who want to separate from the rest of society. Not because of religious reasons, just maybe they think the world, end of the world is coming. And they never sent their children to school. And, you know, she had to work in her father's scrap business. Severe injuries were common, and she was abused by her older brother. And then Bartholet would continue to say that this isn't an isolated family case, but it's, uh, but it's slipped through the cracks. And she would say that that's what can happen under the system in effect in most of the nation. However, if you look at the facts, it actually points to, op- to the opposite direction. A study done in 2018 by Dr. Brian Ray, reported by the National Home Education Research Institute, showed that based on empirical evidence, there is, remar- there is a remarkable rate of abuse of U.S. school children by school personnel. That means teachers, coaches, bus drivers, administrators, custodians. These are the people that Bartholet had been kind of saying that there are mandated reporters. They're the ones that are going to help us. But the study found that actually multiple laws, regulations, and policies related to public and private schools result in a very small fraction of abuse incidents by school personnel ever being reported at all. And so, you know, to be fair, there's limited empirical evidence available to, to date. But even while granting all this, we do know at the same time that all the studies that have been done shows a rate of abuse of children in homeschool families is lower than the general public. There is absolutely no evidence that it's higher in homeschool families. So why did I go through this whole spiel? Because if you continue to read that article, this is Bartlett's own words. 
This is what she says. The issue is, do we think that parents should have 24-7 essentially authoritarian control over their children from ages 0 to 18? I think that's dangerous. I think it's always dangerous to put powerful people in charge of the powerless and to give the powerful ones total authority. So what's the conclusion? Who should have final authority over your children? Not you, but the state. I think the, the, the article should have been titled, Why We Should Get Rid of the Family. Because all the ails of the world come from, apparently, authority. So give it to the state instead. And if this doesn't make any sense to you, you're not alone. But this kind of philosophy was already being ingrained within our children from even when I was in school. To throw off the yoke of oppression meant that you had to take on something new. So what is it that you will take on if it's not Jesus Christ? Remember, Jesus Christ himself said, take on my yoke for my burden is easy and light. But you don't want that. If you don't take it on, what is the other option? Isn't it the opposite of God? Isn't it the opposite of God's instruction? Isn't it the opposite of God's law? However, many of you listening to this, you may even believe that God's instruction is good and it is a benefit to our society. It's just that whether it's outside forces or internal, you just can't follow it. It's so difficult. And that's why there is a herald mentioned at the end of this song. The herald is Zechariah's son, John the Baptist. And this is what he says, and you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from, a high, from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So what does this prophet herald? Exactly what salvation is. In our utterly confused and darkened world, there is clarity in the word of God that enlightens us to what our deepest trouble is. What salvation from that means. Salvation is to be forgiven of our sins. It is not ecological. It's not economic. It's not social reform, and it's not even political. The true heart of salvation is the forgiveness of sins. Jesus saves sinners from a separation of God. God is the source of life and all good things. That's why Jesus saves sinners from hell, the righteous and just punishment that sinners deserve. Just doesn't state that but it gives us why. Why does God do that? It says because of the tender mercy of God. Death does not rule over the believer anymore. Even though we would sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, he gives light to guide our feet in his ways. I mentioned the song before and the lyrics there's this one part that really stood out to me. It says, once in a while when it's good, it'll feel like it should, 
when you're all still around and you're still safe and sound and you don't miss a thing till you cry while you're driving away in the dark. It's pretty emo, but rightfully so. Because if death is your final end, then you should be getting scared of getting older because your best days are behind you. And you might think like this artist did in thinking perhaps religion can't save you because there are so many problems with religion. But I would say to that person, you still are left with no answer. You can't just say we just have to love one another and not define what love is. And when you define it, there's so many holes in it. It doesn't make any sense. That's not what love is. You can't just say, I accept everything. What about the person that says, I want to kill you? That's not love if you accept that. You're still left with no answer when you reject everything. You have to accept something. And this is what we have been given in Christ. Our song changes because of the gospel. For God's people, it changes to the Benedictus. The gospel is incredibly good news because, number one, it shows us how utterly bad our situation is and how much worse it will get quicker and quicker unless something changes. Number two, it doesn't stop there. Number two, the gospel shows us what we were meant to be. How we were made for joy and not sadness, hope and not despair, love and not hate, good and not evil. And it doesn't stop there. Number three, the gospel shows us that in our darkest time, the horn of salvation was raised for us. That means it shows us that Jesus Christ lived and died for us as an example and an assurance, joy, hope. Love and good are not just illusions that can't be grasped, but a promise that we have in Christ. And it doesn't stop there. Number four, the gospel shows us that once we were enemies, but now we are children and servants of the Most High God. We get to be witnesses and partakers of God's mercy and kindness and peace for all eternity. As we continue to study the gospel in the coming weeks, we'll see that the true God, not a Stepford God, the true God is truly beautiful, awe-inspiring, and the only one to be obeyed and worshipped. God came to us in our time of need, in our darkest moment, and he shined a light on us and made a way for us. That's the gospel. You don't have to be afraid that you're wandering around in the darkness because Jesus is that light. That's the good news. And that's what we've been given. Don't you know, as you continue, if you've been to going to church for a long time, the gospel is simple, and yet it's so deep. The more you study it, the more gracious you see God, the more merciful you see his mercy, the more just you see who God of justice is. And God, we realize, is absolutely love. So as we continue to study the gospel in the coming weeks, 
hope that you will also see that he is worthy to be obeyed and worshipped. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that we get to listen to your word. We know that as your people, when your word washes over us, we do not stay the same. We do not sit and stay in darkness, but you change us. You transform our hearts. Your Holy Spirit does a work that sanctifies us, that makes us more like you. And we thank you that we are able to listen in our homes and wherever we are, this good news. I pray that it would continue to wash over us. May it sanctify us. May it make us more like you. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen.